0: Good morning. It's good to see you this morning as we continue to go through the book of 1 Peter. We're in chapter 3 this morning, looking at verses 8 through 12. But uh, you've all watched toddlers at play. And I don't know if you knew this, but they actually have a list of rules that you follow. And sometimes you say, I didn't know that toddlers followed rules. Well, they have a a very specific list of rules that they follow in dealing with possessions. And uh, I was able to come across that, and I thought I would share it with you. And here are nine, or ten, excuse me, ten rules of toddlers and uh, how to handle toys and possessions. Number one, if I like it, it's mine. Two, if it's in my hand, it's mine. Three, if I can take it from you, it's mine. Four, if I had it a little while ago, it's mine. Five, if it's mine, it must never appear to be yours in any way. Six, if I'm doing or building something, all the pieces are mine. Seven, if it looks just like mine, it's mine. Eight, if I saw it first, it's mine. Nine, if you are playing with something and you put it down, it automatically becomes mine. And number ten, if it's broken, it's yours. You know, we have that attitude sometimes as adults, don't we? What benefits me? What do I want to do? What do I want for lunch? And we get excited when it's our way. It's what I want. But Peter's going to challenge us here in 1 Peter 3 the importance of putting others first, loving selflessly to love one another. Let's pray. Father, as we come before You this morning, may we recognize that as Almighty God, Your love for us is beyond measure. Lord, I pray that You would help us to reflect that love. Lord, guide our steps, guide our thoughts, our attitudes. Help us to be known as people of love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we started back in chapter 2, verse 11, in this section of 1 Peter. And Peter says in in chapter 2, verse 11, that that we're to have an example. We're to live a life that draws people to Christ. And he uses the example of say they have nothing evil they can truly say about us. And they're drawn to Christ because of the way that we live. And if you'll remember over the last several weeks, we looked in chapter 2, verses 13 to 17, how we respond to authorities, civil authorities, the idea that we're to submit. In verses 18 through 25 of chapter 2, how we respond in the workplace, that we're to submit to authorities in the workplace and to be a godly worker. In the first verses of chapter 3, we see how we're to live in our families as representatives of christ and now how we live and the attitudes that we're have to have within the church as well as in the world around us first peter chapter 3 beginning in verse 8 says this finally all of you be of one mind having compassion for one another love as brothers be tender-hearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing for he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. He begins in verse eight, and, and how do we respond to one another? How do we respond to fellow Christians and attitudes that we're to have? And we see our attitude is, is described here in five different ways in verse eight. Verse eight says Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tender hearted, be courteous. How do we relate to one another? These characteristics or attitudes are are vital for a godly church. He begins by saying that we are to be of one mind. The idea of cooperation in the midst of diversity. Now, it's important to understand what he's really saying here. It's not saying uniformity. But he's speaking of unity. Now, there are some things that are going to be non-negotiables, but but oftentimes there are things that are not that important in the scope of Christianity that we demonstrate ungodly behaviors in how we respond if it doesn't go our way. We may have opinions on, on minor issues and opinions aren't wrong. Of course, I heard something about opinions. Opinions are like armpits. Everybody has them and some of them stink. And you say, yeah, I'm on this team or this board at work and they have lots of stinky armpits. There's rotten opinions everywhere. But how do we respond within the church? How do we have one mind? Well, my desires cannot allow me to be driven apart from others or cannot cause me to have ungodly behavior. (coughs) Excuse me, also, I need to think what is better for others. When I put others first, I will respond with understanding and grace. And this doesn't mean that we just go along to get along. But when we seek God together, He can bring unity. And maybe it it even goes to this extent, that that if, say, it's the leadership team and and the, the decision is made and I'm not sold on the decision, but yet we've gone before God together and we've made the decision as a group that I need to be unified rather than to sow discord. We need to have one mind and that comes as we seek God together and we desire to honor and look to God and to please Him together. We're to have one mind. Cooperation in the midst of diversity. And compassion or sympathy Romans 12.15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and it's speaking of the church and it compares the church to a body. And all the parts working together, all the parts doing their part in order to make the whole successful. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12.26, And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it, Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. The idea of sympathy, compassion toward one another. As I strive to be a godly, vibrant part of the church, I need to have that compassion. And then he goes on to say, love as brothers. We could put love as brothers should. How many of you have siblings? All right, how many of you have a brother? Okay. Well, when, you know, the Bible is inspired, we believe the Bible's inspired, it's God breathed, it's inerrant in its original manuscripts, it's without error. This could be one place where you may question that. Love is brothers, and I go back to the picture of my brother and I. Now, he's four and a half years older than me, and I've, I've had the pleasure of, of being able to share some stories about the meanness of my brother. He was five school years older than me. He, he liked to uh, beat me up, sometimes because I deserved it, sometimes because he was bored and just needed something to do. Of course, I took it upon myself. I had a responsibility too. His was to beat me up. Mine was to tell mother or dad so that he could get in trouble and it was just fine for me to sort of maybe uh, stretch and exaggerate the uh, what took place in order to get him in more trouble and so you say love his brothers Uh, my brother and I there was times we didn't love that much Peter speaking of something differently we're part of God's family A church term. You know, we're part of the family of God. I remember as a kid we used to sing that song, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. But what does that mean? That means as a family, we stand together, we work together, we serve together, we love each other. Doesn't mean we beat each other up. But we're to love as brothers. We're to be that godly family. And we're to be tender hearted deeply concerned for others. That literally means to have good bowels. And you say, that's strange. That Greek word means to have good bowels? What's it talking about? Well, it was believed that the bowels were the place of our deepest emotions. And we still do that sometimes today, right? You know, we say things like... Um, "Oh." I just went blank on what it was. Oh, yeah. I I feel it in my gut. Or that was gut wrenching. Every time my favorite team plays, it's always gut wrenching. It, oh. And that's what we need to have. We need to have that passionate, love and being for each other that concern for one another we need to be tender-hearted we need to be driven by the desire to come alongside to help and to encourage and then the last the last characteristic he gives in verse 8 is to be humble-minded or courteous and and it's translated here, courteous, but really it's better translated humble-minded. It doesn't mean that we just always open the door for each other. Which is a nice thing to do, but, but it's speaking of more than that. It's to put others first. And we are to put their benefit above our own. And so, here Peter is saying, listen, amongst yourselves, and they were going to go through an incredible amount of adversity. They needed to stand together. They needed to come alongside and encourage each other. They needed to love one another with a selfless love. And being humble-minded, it would bring the ability to have that goal of unity. It would allow for compassion and love to take place and would give opportunity for us to reach out to one another with a tender heart. We are to love one another selflessly. It's not about me. It's about God. It's about others. And so Peter challenges, listen, you're going to go through some hard times. Make sure you demonstrate these characteristics in your lives. You reach out and encourage one another. But then he goes on in verse 9, and he talks about our response when we even kick up the flame a little bit. It's a little harder. Not only are we to demonstrate right actions motivated by right attitudes, but Peter also challenges us to have a proper reaction when we're mistreated. Maybe in the church. Maybe in the world. How do I respond when I'm treated unfairly? Look at verse 9. It says this, "...not returning evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this that you may inherit a blessing." You know, it's easier to love our friends than it is to love our enemies. But we're called to love both. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus shared some radical thoughts about what we should do in response to those who mistreat us. The Sermon on the Mount found in Matthew 5-7. through It begins, Jesus is sharing there on a hillside talking to a group of people. And he, and he starts with what we call the Beatitudes. These attitudes that we're to have as general characteristics in our life. And then he goes through and he shares a list of things. And he, and he starts by saying, it has been said. And then he would go to an Old Testament command. Now, he was there in Israel and his audience was mainly a Jewish audience and they were very familiar with the Old Testament law. But he would, he would say things like, it has been said, do not murder. But I say, Jesus speaking, but I say, don't get angry. A murderous attitude. People say, well, you know, I didn't kill Him. I just wanted to. Guess what? Jesus is challenging our attitudes. And so He goes through and He lists some different things. Things. Don't commit adultery, but I say don't have evil thoughts. And he goes through this list and he comes to verse 38 of chapter 5. And I'm sure a lot of these people are sitting there on this hillside saying, Whoa, this is radical. This isn't how we normally think. But then he says this in verses 38 through 45 of Matthew 5. He says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. Again, you have heard that it's been said. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not, I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn from him and the other also, or turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for He makes His Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. It has been said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Now, we look at that, and we look at it from one side of the spectrum. We think, that's a pretty harsh thing. Actually, it was used as a balance and to make sure that justice was not underserved or overserved. If somebody hit me, I wanted to hit them twice. And so, that Old Testament law, and it wasn't just in the Jewish society. Many societies had similar ideas. But it was the right punishment for the crime. And so Jesus said, listen, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And then He goes on, but I say, treat that person and bless that person treat them well bless them when they curse you and treat you poorly what you see there's there's three ways to look at how i respond if something is done good to me i can respond with evil and you say well, you know i usually don't do that but we like to fall in number 2 if if good is done to us, we'll respond with good. But if evil is done to us, we will respond with evil. My wife is nice to me today, I'll be nice to her. But but she picks at me and says mean things, I'm going to snap right back. She deserves it. Right? That's the idea we have. But Jesus is saying, and Peter here is saying, have a completely different idea. When that person is mean to you, or unfair to you, hurts you, you respond with blessing. And, P- and Jesus, in, here in the Sermon on the Mount Matthew 5, gives some examples. And, and it helps to understand the Old Testament law and, and regulations. So he says some interesting things. He says, so whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. Don't hit him back. Now I'm proud to say, and when you start a sentence that, you know you're in trouble, right? I'm proud to say that I did that one time that I can remember. I was a senior in high school. And and I was a, a pretty impressive specimen as a senior in high school. I weighed about 150. 55 to 65 pounds. It was about 5'9", average in height, below average in weight, but I could lift small amounts. And I remember I was walking down the street, and, and another kid from our high school that was an all-state defensive lineman who was about 6'2" and weighed about 230, and lived in the weight room. He came in, we and we you know we had talked quite a bit during high school. I, it wasn't good friends, but I didn't think he was my enemy but he comes up to me and he just slugs me in the stomach hard and he said you know when we were in 6th grade you said something mean to me i couldn't remember what i had said mean to him in 6th grade but i'm sure i didn't mean it especially if i knew he was going to as a high school senior going to be 6'2" 30 and and he knew i was a christian and so he said, so what are you going to do? Turn the other cheek. And I thought of my options. Option number one, I could hit him back. That's a dumb option. <laughs> option number two, I could run, but right now after he hit me in the stomach, I couldn't even breathe, much less run. So option number three, was my best option. And it included several parts. It included praying, serious prayer, closing my eyes so I couldn't see what was about to happen, and I went like that. And as I picked my eyes open just a little bit, he just shook his head and walked on. I did what Jesus called me to do. I did it because I wanted to preserve my life, not because I was actually thinking in a godly manner. But it's hard to do, isn't it? When somebody does something to you, oh, I want to get back at them. Allow them to do it again? Turn the other cheek? (laughs) I don't think so. But he goes on. He doesn't stop there. And he says, In verse 40 of Matthew 5, he says, If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Now, they had regulations. See, you could sue somebody and you could take things from them, including the tunic. But you were not allowed to sue them for their cloak. That was to keep them warm. And so even if I owed this other person millions of dollars, there were certain things they couldn't take and one of them was my cloak to keep me warm. And Jesus is saying, yeah, they can't take it from you legally, but offer it to them. What? This guy's suing me. I don't want to give him anything. And Jesus is saying, give him more than you're required to give him? Whoa. But he goes on. More than that. Verse 41, And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. What's he talking about there? Well, the Roman soldiers could require any one of the captured peoples, including the Jews, those people that Rome had conquered, they could require them to take their backpack and other things that they were carrying and make them go a mile, but in order to not (coughs) overdo it, they could only legally do one mile. Of course, this was so humiliating to carry the backpack and the materials of the person who has conquered you or one of the people who has conquered you. So humiliating. And what does Jesus say? go one mile but not one step further no he says go the second mile that person at work that is then the Greek word is jerk you can look it up right and you have an opportunity (laughs) using the word opportunity sarcastically to help them with the project I'm going to do just as much as I'm required to, but not one more thing. Jesus said, listen. Go the extra mile. Offer to help beyond what you're required. That's not natural, is it? But that's what God calls us to do. And so... Peter's saying here in 1 Peter 3 and, and Jesus is saying in the, mount, on the Sermon on the Mount, listen, you need to treat your enemy differently than you want to. And Jesus said it there in, in Matthew 5. He said you do it so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. You do it because you're representing the family that you belong to. Maybe you messed up as a kid and your mom or your dad said, come on, you need to act like you're part of this family. You're destroying our reputation. God lovingly challenges us to live differently to honor the family to which we belong. And Jesus said, listen, you've heard it said, you love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. And we do it to represent our family well. And then He closes by saying, listen... Your heavenly Father allows the sun to shine on the unrighteous as well as the righteous, the rain to come on the fields of the evil farmer as well as the good farmer. We need to represent our family well. What is my response when I'm mistreated? And then he finishes, Peter finishes the section in verses 10 through 12 with our motivation. First Peter 10 through 12 says this: "For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit, let him turn away from evil and do good, let him seek peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers, and the fa- or but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil." Now, those verses come from Psalm 34, and actually several times throughout First Peter he refers to Psalm 34. And let's step back for just a moment and look at the background of what's taking place in Psalm 34. It was written by David. David wrote about half of the Psalms. There's 150 Psalms recorded in Scripture. He wrote about half of them. But in Psalm 34, he wrote this Psalm in some amazing circumstances. You see, David was being chased by King Saul. If you're not familiar with the story, David, a young man, you're familiar. He defeated Goliath, but he did that. King Saul was king of Israel. But then David was, was able to have some more military victories and, and all of a sudden, the people started shouting and, and appreciating David and they came up with this little song. Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. And that made Saul just go ballistic. And he became very jealous of David for that and other reasons. And so Saul was looking for an opportunity to kill David. But David would re- always respond by honoring the king. People around David would say, David, you should kill him. Look what he's trying to do to you. <laughs> Matthew chapter 5, love your enemy. Do good to those who do evil toward you. David was demonstrating that. But in Psalm 34, he's running from King Saul. And he has to go into the Philistine area or country. Now the Philistines were their mortal enemies. And the Philistines hated the Israelites, and the Israelite they hated the most was David. (laughs) He's the one who had killed their hero, Goliath. He is the one who had led the Israelite army in, in many conquering battles against the Philistines. And so to to get away from the pressure of being chased by Saul, David ends up in Philistine territory and he comes in front of this one of the Philistine rulers named Abimelech. And things are not looking good. You could say he was between a rock and a hard place. And in that time, he writes Psalm 34. And we're not going to go through Psalm 34 this morning, but I encourage you this week to to sit down and read it. It's a psalm of amazing praise in the midst of incredible adversity. So these verses Peter takes from Psalm 34 in writing verses 10-12 through here in 1 Peter 3. And he said, this is what you need to do. For he who would love life and see good days, again, originally from David, and that word life, as Peter translated it into the Greek from the Hebrew, he uses a different word for life. Not just your time on earth, not a, a time frame. But it was the idea of how you live your life. It, was, it, it, it emphasized experience. It was the idea of living life to the fullest. So we could read it like this. He who wants to live life to the fullest and see the best of days needs to do this. He needs to refrain his tongue from evil. He needs to refrain his lips from speaking deceit. He turns away from evil and does good. He seeks peace and pursues it. That's what the person does who really desires to love life. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have the same struggles as those who don't follow Jesus Christ. Sometimes we just endure life or maybe we try to escape life but as a christ follower we can have true joy we can enjoy life and in the midst of his incredibly dark circumstances david could enjoy life how could he do that or how does he do it he does it by training from speaking evil or deceit from doing good or for, by doing good rather than evil by seeking peace and pursuing it and then he shares his motivation why can he do that in the midst of rotten things how can he do that how can he not respond to King Saul by getting back at him? And, and there were several occasions, two in particular, where Scripture shares that, that Saul was there and had no clue David was around, and David could have killed him just like that. And the people, he had, he had some people that were with David, and they were saying, Look, at, God's brought Saul into your hands. This is your opportunity to kill him. And David said, I can't kill him. He's God's anointed. I'm going to let God deal with him. And I'm going to honor the king. Even though he's being a pretty rotten king. So what happens here? How can we have that attitude? The attitudes of verse 8 where we we strive together through the power of the Holy Spirit to be like-minded to put the other person first. When we sing that song and worship that's not my favorite, but I look down the row and I see someone else who is really drawn to that song, I say, boy, I'm glad they picked that song today. It's hard, isn't it? How can I have the attitude of Showing compassion. Even toward that person that I don't necessarily get along with. How can I love as brothers should? How can I live a life being tender hearted, that passion for others? Being humble minded. What's my motivation? Verse 9, how can I treat that person who has treated me with evil, how can I treat them with good? How can I pray for my enemy? Well, he gives the answer here. Psalm 34 and Peter in verses 10-12. through 12, And he says three things, and it's three pictures of God in verse 12. It says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Three human pictures of God. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And and these come from the Old Testament. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. It was a picture of God watching over His people. Picture a a mother of a young child, a toddler who's just starting to motor around. And that mother's not taking her eyes off that child knowing that at any moment that child will unintentionally get themselves in trouble. Or intentionally get themselves in trouble. But God is watching over us. How could Peter say, listen, when you're mistreated, respond with grace, forgiveness, and goodness. Because God's taking care of you. Let God take care of you and do the right thing. And His ears are open to our prayers. God is listening as we call out to Him. So you're with that Greek word jerk all day at work, and they are especially rotten that day, and you get home, (laughs) and don't just start praying when you get home, but you say, God, help me to deal with that person in a way that you would have them deal with me, or that you would have me deal with them, excuse me. And trust that God will give you the strength through the power of His Holy Spirit to act like a child of God when instead you would rather them get what they deserved. And then the third but, so you know it's changing, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Justice will take place but let God handle it the face of the Lord is against those and that's another Old Testament term dealing with judgment and justice so you're here this morning and you have that person and maybe it's a short-term issue maybe you're having a struggle and in your marriage maybe it's somebody else in your family maybe it's somebody at the workplace somebody in your neighborhood you have that neighbor that happened to move in next door how are you going to respond how are you going to act verse 8 dealing specifically in the church how are we as a church family going to represent christ in the way that we interact with each other We are called as part of God's family, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, to live differently. And we need to rely on the power of His Spirit to live in a way that the world will notice and that God will be glorified. You see, the question as we close this morning is this. How do we live our lives on the stage of this world. People are watching. How do we live to represent Christ? Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your goodness and Your love. I pray that You would help us to live as people that honor You, that love one another. Help us to have unity and compassion toward one another. Help us to love to have tender-hearted or to be tender-hearted and to be humble-minded. Lord, help us to respond whether it's our friend or our enemy who does evil against us, help us to respond with goodness and grace. Recognizing that we can look to you because you are looking out for us and we can trust you. Lord, help us this week to live With that in mind, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.